This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You can be seated. So let me ask you, who's your favorite kid? Let me ask the kids, who's the favorite? It was a, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago. Uh, The older my kids get, the, uh, the less time we get them all in the same room. And so when you do, you, you really like it and really enjoy it. And uh, somehow the conversation turned toward who was our favorite. Which in, I mean, 25 years, that was like the first time that had actually come up that I remember. And of course, we said what we were supposed to say. You all, none of you are, we love you all individually in your own unique ways. Which they called a BS on that pretty quick. They, um, so we said, well, who do you think is our favorite? And they, without any hesitation, all four of them, simultaneously said, Ashley, including Ashley, I might add. (laughs) And honest to goodness, it was shocking because I would have thought they would have said Ethan. Ethan is the uh, youngest by like four years. Uh, Ethan uh, is like his next is like 19 is the next oldest daughter and then 21-year-old and a 24-year-old. So we kind of forget he's there sometimes. You know, I don't know if you've had that, like the, the little surprise towards the end of the, the pack. You're like, have you seen Ethan? I don't know where he's not. 
Like he didn't get spanked as much as the others. We gave him a lot more latitude than the others. And frankly, I mean, it's some of it, we just, we practiced and figured out a lot of things we'd done real wrong, you know? But no, they thought it was Ashley. So I was like, oh, okay, that's a surprising thought. I didn't, didn't realize that. And, now, and you're probably wondering, if you're really wondering, who is my favorite? I'm gonna tell you right now who it is. Whoever does what I have asked or said without any hesitation, any pushback, any argument in that moment, that is my favorite. It's a moving target. Sometimes none of them are my favorite. <laughs> Never has it been all of them, I assure you of that. <laughs> Sometimes they lock arms and like unionize against us. But I, I know this, that I feel some empathy for uh, Jacob. Because notice, Jacob didn't say he was his favorite. The narrator tells us that it was his favorite. You know, we never told our kids that one was the favorite. They just sort of figured this out all on their own. And so I feel some empathy in that. And especially, you know, like when you start racking up the kids like, uh, like the Forrest family, where we're suddenly like into like a baseball score level, like we're getting like, you know, or maybe like basketball score, like, like you know, we've reached a dozen at this point. Like it's hard to say like this one, you know, this one needed me more here, or this one needed me more there. And I just, I don't know, I have empathy for him in that, in that uh, idea. But then at the same time, I look at that and think, when you read the, these other kids were older than he was, so Joseph is 17. He's actually not the youngest. He's the next youngest. And his other brothers are all adults right now. And they're making some um, creative decisions with their lives. They're pushing the boundaries. They're wearing that out uh, completely. I mean, at one point, these brothers have gone into a neighboring village of Shechem, tricked all the guys into uh, circumcising themselves. Think about this. And then, while they were all limping around, murdered them all. Okay? These weren't the nicest guys. I think it's Genesis 35. I mean, if you want some interesting reading for your afternoon <laughs> Bible study. But that's the generation that is happening right here. And it kind of reminds me of a quote that I, I shared a little bit online this week, but it's, it's worth uh, sharing again, and that is that hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. It's a cycle of generations. And what Jacob has right now are 12 sons, 11 of whom could qualify as weak men creating hard times. It's a very complicated time. Jacob's got one son that seems to be rising up. Now, he's 17. He's probably got plenty of time to, you know, whatever. But it seems at this point that Joseph, something's different about him. He's making some decisions that are a little different than his, his brothers were making. Joseph uh, rode up. It rose up at this time. And you'll notice in the, in the uh, biblical narrative, throughout the biblical narrative, whenever you see in the Old Testament the, the scarlet thread of Jesus from Adam all the way to Jesus, you'll see that the, the one that is in the bloodline of Jesus is the one that normally is the one that is featured in the, in the narrative, whether it was David and Bathsheba 
you know, Naomi, like the, the whole thing along the way, you'll see that Jesus, I mean, even uh, Rahab the harlot, like she's featured in the story because she's in the bloodline of Jesus. But Judah is literally gets like an honorable mention, even though he's in the bloodline of Jesus. It's Joseph that gets the most of this narrative from it. And as we go into this series in the next few weeks, we're going to really just hit one thing, and that's like, based on this. Now, we're not going to find a lot of morals for us to follow and to emulate. In fact, we're going to see a lot of things that we should not emulate. Um, if you approach the Bible only as a book that is full of morals and good things and uh, things that we should uh, emulate and do, the Bible doesn't really let, your, let it, you read it that way. If you approach it instead as the gospel narrative from Genesis to Revelation and see the scarlet thread that goes through the whole thing, it changes it into a whole different idea. And so the question we're going to ask every week is based on what we just read, based on what we see right here, the question is, what is true about God? And if that's true about God, then what is true about me? Our modern vernacular is we ask the question, what's true about me? And then I flip that into, okay, now that what is true about God based on what's true about me. The Bible will not allow for that. It doesn't, there is no room for that narrative. So we're going to ask that question. And today, specifically, I, I want you to see that this is not just a story about a nice new jacket. Uh, it's, it's not the birth of Donny Osmond's career. If, if you are laughing, I know how old you are. It, it's not just a story of a son that was loved more by his father. I think this story, the story underneath of the story, is that when faced with the truth of God's word, like when, when the word of the Lord comes and the truth is in your face, you're confronted with the truth. You've got two options. That's the first option, to, to reject it. <laughs> well played. To reject the word of the Lord or to, as Jacob would do, keep it in his heart. And your decisions in that moment of what you do with the truth will affect everything about your life. It affects your attitude. It affects the way that the world affects you. It affects the way that you affect the world. It's not a small distinction when the word of the Lord confronts us. And as we have for this day, for these few moments this afternoon, I want to show you what it looks like to be Joseph in a Judah generation. I'm going to show you in a minute what I mean by that. I'm going to show you the two choices that they faced when they were confronted with the truth, with the word of the Lord. And then we're going to ask the question, based on that, what's true about God? It's a very simple and yet very complex journey that we're about to embark on. In these next seven weeks, we're going to ask the question, of like, what is true about God? It has to be true in the pit. It has to be true in a prison. It has to be true in a palace, or it's not true in any situation. And that is the journey of Joseph, a pit, a prison, a palace. It's every one of our journeys, sometimes all in the same day. But the truth of God has got to be true in all of those. So what do I mean when I say a Joseph in a Judah generation? See, we say, and even our little sermon title said that this is the story of Joseph, right? That's what Bibles say, or Bible teachers say this. That's what the flannel graphs say. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in verse 2 that this is the account of Jacob's family 
line. That, that what we're about to read, this is the story of Jacob's and the King James Version. It says the generations of Jacob. The generations of Jacob. It's the story. We can call it Joseph, totally fine, but that's not the story. This is the story of the generations. And here's why this matters. Remember, let's go back to this G. Michael Cop quote. It's, it's from an apocalyptic novel that I do not recommend. It's really not that good. But he just point this one line out here that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. He did not create that line in a vacuum. That that is not a new idea. What he's saying is this idea that we've all heard before, which is that history repeats itself. The ancient Greeks said that history was not a straight line, but it went in a circle. Uh, in Homer's The Iliad, he, there's this line where he talks about, so the generations of man, as the leaves fall, they will rise again in the generations. It didn't even start there. It started actually in Ecclesiastes when Solomon in the Bible said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, here's the thing. That's not just hyperbole. That's not just some nice idea Back in the 19, early 1990s, I, I guess I'm supposed to say the late 1900s now. Is that, do you know that's what teachers are saying about the 1990s right now? They're calling it the late 1900s. Doesn't that hit different with, I mean, <laughs> it's offensive is what it is. But in the, <laughs> but in the late 1900s, Actually, these names, the Strauss-Howe theory, like even in the, that even sounds like something from the late 1900s. But the Strauss-Howe generational theory was first released in the early 1990s. And this theory where these gentlemen did a study of 500 years of Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon history and came up with this concept after going all through history and figuring out that it does go in a circle. And they were able to pinpoint that it actually goes in an 80-year cycle Think with me on this. An 80-year cycle that actually breaks into 20-year periods. Has anyone heard this before? Some of you have. A couple of you are at first service. No, I'm just kidding. And they say that inside of this. So when you hear like millennials and busters and boomers and Xers and all that, we are aware of creating archetypes of generations, but they actually created archetypes that fit, that actually repeat over and over again. So what they would say... 1940 was the last time that this, the 80-year cycle began, that the hard times brought up a man, uh, men that would lead out of that that they would have called prophets. So prophets speak truth, they speak uh, uh, to, into maddening, they look at the truth, and instead of saying, we're going to try to adapt truth to our reality, they're going to say, we're going to adapt our reality to the truth, because that is what is true. So think Winston Churchill, not William Neville. From that generation, it gives way to what they called the nomads. And the nomads are those who would uh, reach new heights. They would press the boundaries and you know, go to the 60s, the free love, the, the, we're going to the moon. We're to, so think John Kennedy, not Richard Nixon. And from the nomads, as they're stretching out and they're pushing the boundaries, the hero generation comes along again, another 20-year cycle, and the hero comes in and says, look, well, I appreciate all that stuff you're smoking and, and dropping, and we, we're trying to run a civilization here, and so we're going to come in, and we're going to create economic success, and we're going to try to create. So think Reagan, not Jimmy Carter. 
Now, what happens when someone like that comes along and creates a, a, a financial situation that is stable, that is helpful, from that is born the generation of artists. Now, this is an unfortunate name because we live in Nashville, so I understand the archetypes were not designed by me. I'm just the messenger. But the idea of the artists is they were raised in a generation where everything was going real well for them. Miami Vice was rocking it. BJ and the Bear. I mean, it was, we had all... we were. Mork and Mindy, like we were crushing it in that generation. But the artists growing up in that world are weak men who create hard times. Now, why would I bring that up in a study about Joseph? Think with me. About a prophet named Abraham who spoke truth into the madness and he gives birth to a son named Isaac, the next generation, the one that would stretch out, that would reach new heights, Mount Moriah. He would begin to create and to move into what God had for him. And from Isaac, uh, all the wandering would become the work of the hero, Jacob, who would wrestle with God and walk away with a relationship. You are one who wrestled with God. And Jacob creates, I wouldn't say the most functional family. Like if Jerry Springer were around, he probably could have had at least a month's worth of episodes just on Jacob's family. <laughs> but, but it was a stable time of economic growth. And from that, he gives birth to Judah, the bloodline of Christ. But those brothers, Judah wasn't even in the oldest, by the way. But from that bloodline came the artists who were beginning to create hard times because they were weak men. And read through Genesis 35, 36, 37, and as time goes on, as famine unfolds, that's where they found themselves. Now, why would I bring point up today here? I think that a study of Joseph at a time like this is about as poignant as we could have ever hoped for those of you that remember that the last turning began in 1940 when the prophets arose Who's quick with math in here? Fast forward 80 years. Can you give me 80 years from 1940? 2020. That sound familiar? You see maybe what's happening in our world? And so the question becomes, how do we live as a Joseph in a Judah generation. You see, the Judah generation should have been the one that were rising up and, and being strong, but they weren't. They were not following the Lord. They were doing crazy things. But I want to remind you, though, that in that last turning, in that 1940, a guy named C.S. Lewis began to do radio broadcasts and began to write and to release content into the world. A book called Mere Christianity, which is still one that saves faith for people all over the world, including my own, was a series of radio broadcasts from the 40s, Chronicles of Narnia. And then there was his beer-drinking buddy, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. My point is, prophets were arising from hard times. How old is Joseph in this? Does anybody remember? He was 17. If you were part of the Gen Z generation, if you were part of the, if you're a teenager right now, if you're a millennial, hear me say this as clearly as I possibly can. It is from your generation that the prophets will arise. It is from your generation that you will come and clean up the messes that my generation have made.
We need you to become the Josephs in the Judah generation. And I believe, man, should Jesus tarry, we're not gonna beat the cycle. This is the Genesis 3 world. This is the fallen world. It's going to start over again. But when Joseph's arise in a Judah season, man, God can do amazing things. And I believe that is what this series will hopefully wake up the possibilities in all of us of the impact that we are called to make, the impact that we get to make. And the question becomes, like, how do we do that? Because I'll tell you this, that a bold Jesus, believing in a bold Jesus, gives us the freedom to be secure and to be bold. That bold beliefs, bold stances, create bold lives. And it's pretty clear the difference between Joseph and his brothers. And I want to show you that because I think if we see that, it gives us a playbook to dial into the boldness that Jesus has for us. If you go down to the two choices that they were confronted with, I alluded to that a minute ago. Um, Just at the bottom, let's say um, verses 10, 11. So remember, Kelly already read this for us. They've had dreams. Joseph is reading these dreams. Uh, he's, he's explaining the dreams. The brothers are mad. They're jealous. But t- towards the end, in verse, let's just say verse 10, his, he told his father as well as his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You see, they heard the word of the Lord and they had two choices when they were confronted with it. Now you're saying, well, Darren, that was just a dream. How could they have known? I want to prove to you, I think that I can prove to you that they did know, that they, didn't, they knew that this wasn't just some annoying punk little brother. Does anybody have an annoying punk little brother? <laughs> Valerie, so you got one of your kids raising her hand over here. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> did you ever think of killing him? I, well, let me phrase that. Because there were, there were moments, yeah. But, but honestly, would you have thrown him into a cistern and sold him into slavery and then called your mom and said, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. I got nothing. That doesn't make any sense unless they believed that these dreams were true. That fits this narrative way more closely. So they had become aware of the word of the Lord, believed it to be true, to the point where they said, are we going to have you reign over us? Like they knew what this meant. This little technicolor dream coat was not just something for Donny Osmond. It actually was a statement that he is now going to be in charge of this family, that he is going to be the one that will save this family. They heard it. And they rejected it. And here's why they rejected it. It says it right in the text. Because they were, verse 11, jealous of him. The difference between jealousy and envy is critical at this point. Envy means, uh, Jace has an incredible truck, this trailer that like you hit the button and it just, like it's like a, like a transformer. Like it turns, I think it turns into a robot and fights crime for all I know. But it, I'm envious of his trailer. I would love that trailer. Jealousy is not that. Jealousy is not envy. I want something that you have. Jealousy is I have something that I'm afraid you're going to take from me. When you hear the phrase jealous lover, right? They're jealous because they're, 
they are afraid that you are going to steal their spouse from them, something important from them. Jealousy, that's a Merriam-Webster's definition of jealousy, is the fear of losing something that is important to you. And when they heard this word from the Lord, they believed it to be true. They saw the uniform on Joseph. Have you ever worked at a restaurant where you had to wear the apron? I used to have to wear a green apron with a bow tie. But the manager, when they were promoted to management, they had to lose the apron and they got to wear a regular tie, right? You walk into Cracker Barrel, you know who the manager is, right? You walk into Jacob's you know, bar and grill, you know who the manager is. It's Joseph because he's not the one dressed like a, a field worker. He's got the coat that is the one that tells him he's in charge. And so they see that and they know that the Lord is doing something in their life that is they don't like because they're going to lose it and out of jealousy, they reject it. And when you think about it from an honest perspective, when you get the word of the Lord, the word of God, if this Bible has never offended you before, you are probably not reading it right. If, if you've not come across anything in here that I thought, yeah, 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 I don't like that at all, then read a little more. But in that moment, when I get to that thing, when I'm, if I'm honest with myself, what I don't like about it is I'm afraid it's going to take something away from me that I think is important. I'm jealous of it. And so what do we do? We do what Jacob did and what Joseph did. Verse 11 goes on to say, but the father kept the matter in mind. The word right there in Hebrew for matter, the matter, in multiple other places in Genesis is translated as the word of the Lord. It's over. So I'm not just making up that this is a word from the Lord. That is a, the, the word Jacob heard it. So Jacob didn't like it. Jacob heard the word of the Lord and said, I don't much care for that but I'm going to keep it in my mind. Keeping meaning like you're keeping your grandma's silverware, you're protecting it. Uh, for those of you that have a gun safe in your house, so you're like, you, you protect it, you keep it, you lock it, you make sure that it's safe and away from harm. That's what it means. And what does that say to us? That says to us that if we've got to protect it and keep it, that somebody actually wants to harm it. Remember Jesus and the sower, the sower sows the word, and one of the things they want to come is to steal the word from you, to peck away at it. And in our modern context right now, I'm going to tell you exactly who is wanting to steal the word from our hearts. One of them are the social media companies. Uh, that's probably too small to read, but I'm just going to read the very last sentence in here. This is from Tristan Harris, a former design ethicist. I didn't even know that was a job, design ethicist at Google. It's probably why he quit but he's talking about this being a tool. Uh, if, if, if it's genuinely a tool, these things were originally created to be tools. A tool doesn't sit around and cry out to you. I've got tools in my garage, and they have never once ever cried out to me. My wife can confirm this with the amount of things that still need to be repaired in our home, and my tools are silent in the garage. But these are not tools. He said this has, it has technology, its own goals, and it has its own means of pursuing them by using your psychology, listen, your psychology, your mind against you. It, the enemy knows where to hit you because it's where the word of the Lord is supposed to be protected. There is an onslaught from social media companies starting with that want to attack your, hack your brain 
to pull you away from things that matter to this. If anyone has ever, my kids asked me once, Dad, you know, they mentioned something about you. Apparently there's a point on TikTok where at some point a screen says, you've been on here too long. Has anyone made it that deep into TikTok? So I don't know how far that is, but I'll bet it's days. Like, I think that it's, some point, they're like, even the, the Chinese guys who own that company, like, okay, you've been on here too long. Like, you've been. But, but they're designed to keep you in that company. And so you've got social media companies that are designed to take that and attack you using your psychology. And then just this last week, Charlie Chester, the new famous CNN technical director, caught on hidden camera talking about how we have made uh, the headlines more scary because fear sells. Now, everybody knows that. They just don't usually admit it out loud. And to wonder how big of a threat that is, the, the, literally all this is is a hidden camera investigation, and Twitter took this account down over the weekend. There's nothing on here that wasn't true, but they took it down this weekend uh, because they don't want us to know that. So what do I say about that? <laughs> there is a war for your brain. That's the battle. The battlefield is for your mind. Should we abandon social media altogether? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's an option, by the way. My buddy Dave Summerall up in uh, I-Town, Indianapolis, shut down his whole, there's a church of like 8,000 people. They are off of all social media. I'm still of the opinion so far that as long as we know the game, that we can game the game. And here's one reason why that I've continued where we are with our church and our mission is that this week, uh, these four families are about to be released. Okay. So we can look to social media and say we can let them play us or we can game them redeem this, but it requires a full-blown assault of protecting the word of God in your mind. This is not something that you just wake up and just happen. This is going to require a proactive attack on the front lines while you are protecting your brains. Recognizing that a company that is set up literally to get you afraid or to get you jealous is probably not a company that has your best interests in mind. And I would say the word of the Lord has come to a lot of us this past year, calling us forward into doing certain things, into making courageous stands. And I have watched many of you push through fear and step into that kind of courage. I mean, Sheldon, how many times have you been to Honduras since like, like January? Six? Mission organizations all around the world are shut down, can't make trips, too scared, and you all just are like, whatever, what pandemic? Would people need us? That, that's the kind of courage that we need. We need Josephs in the Judah generation. Now, with this in mind, the question really becomes what we started with, which is, if this is true, okay, if Joseph rose up and Judah did not, what is true about God? And here's what's true about God. He loves Joseph's and he loves Judah's. Judah didn't have to screw up his life. 
but God's will was still done. Jesus is a lion of the tribe of. See, Judah had a plan for his life. He just didn't want to submit to it. He didn't understand it. And so out of jealousy, he was fighting for something that he already had. The kingdom of God is not some pie that we are all fighting and clawing and scraping to try to get our little piece. The kingdom of God is an ever-increasing kingdom. You see, God doesn't play favorites. He had a plan for Joseph. He had a plan for Judah. He had a plan for Naphtali. He had a plan for all of them. He has a plan for you. Jacob played favorites, but God does not. But listen to me. God does not play favorites, and you are his favorite. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He looks on you. Caleb, he looks on you all the way in the back over there, and he sees Jesus. He sees his only son, You are his favorite. He has an ever-increasing kingdom. He has an ever-abundance of love that means that you can be his favorite and I can be his favorite. And it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. And God thrives in paradox. Whenever you see madness, that's Satan. But when you see paradox, that's God. Did he choose me or did I choose him? Yes, Paradox. Doesn't make God smaller, it makes him bigger. A God big enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. He has a plan for each of these brothers. He's got a plan for each of you. And it fits, these, whatever, wherever we are in this 80-year cycle, there is an eternal cycle that fits inside of this. These little 80-year cycles of mankind are just a snap here and a snap there in the grand scheme of God's eternity. We're going to see in a few weeks, but God was bringing this family into Egypt. Do you think Jacob might have felt a failure because he didn't stay in the land of Canaan where he wanted to be? But if you're God and you need to protect a family of 70 people that you're trying to make into a great nation, what better place than to outsource the greatest military on the planet to protect your 70 people, to grow them to a nation of 3 million, and then when you're done with them, take all your gold and go back. God's plans are so much bigger than ours. And in my little thing, in my little micro story, that's where jealousy will come from. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this, and if I don't do this, it's gonna, I'm going to lose it. And if we can let go of all of that, that's fear. That's not faith. That's the complete opposite of faith. When you hear the word of the Lord this week for your life, when you read it in the Bible, are you going to keep it? By the way, it doesn't even mean you have to understand it, quite honestly, at first. My pastor used to call it bookshelf theology. I don't quite understand that. I'm going to put this on the shelf and I'm going to come back to it. But I may not understand, but I'm going to keep it and I'm going to trust. Because that choice that you make is going to dramatically affect your life. It's going to dramatically affect your attitude. It's going to dramatically affect the way that the world impacts you and dramatically impact the way, uh, impact the way you can impact the world. And it's your choice. And he loves you either way. 
Judah didn't have to live a miserable life. He didn't have to go hang out with temple prostitutes and make a giant mess, but he did. And Jesus still came from his bloodline because God is so good and so gracious. For some of us, maybe this week would be a good week to take a look at the battlefield in your mind. You know, if you've got the courage, take a look at your screen time this week. Check out your dwell hours on your phone and check out your Facebook hours. And not out of shame, but go, maybe you might need to dial that back a little bit. Maybe there's a problem right there. Some of it just might be as simple as I'm literally going to... Remember the old days we took three by five cards and we would put scriptures and you'd put them on the mirrors and on the refrigerators. And I probably need to put one on the fridge if I'm being honest. <laughs> Don't eat that. Um, a, a way where you can constantly keep the word of God, the word of the Lord in your mind, protecting it from the enemy that wants to come and to pick it away. 2 Corinthians 5, for him, verse 22, he made him who knew no sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Joseph becomes the complete and perfect archetype of Jesus. Judah had Jesus right in the middle of his bloodline. You and I have Jesus all over us. We are in Christ Next week, we're going to talk about the pit. The two weeks here, this is the journey to the pit. The clock is ticking on young Joseph. He doesn't even know it. But as you're studying, maybe read chapter 37 this week a little bit more. Notice that in your newer versions, it doesn't say pit. It says a cistern. Not just a cistern, but an empty cistern, a broken cistern. A cistern in the desert with no water is worthless. And remember Jeremiah 2, verse 13, my people have committed two sins trying to get water from a broken cistern and rejecting the rivers of living water. John 4, verse 14, Jesus said, rivers of living water will flow from within you. Joseph, the ultimate archetype of Jesus, is the river of living water. They threw him in an empty cistern. They put their trust in a broken cistern, not in the Joseph, the Jesus image that was there to save them. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. The real heroes, the 1130 heroes. <laughs> Lord, I pray that we would find our place in this season. Whatever season it is, maybe Strauss and Howard are wrong, we don't know. But whatever season it is in, God, you are the God of the pit, you're the God of the prison, and you're the God of the palace. Wherever we find ourselves, let us put our faith in you, our trust in you, and remove all of the trust and the faith that we have in these broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus, would you bless my brothers and sisters as they leave today? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We've all searched for the light